Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Healthy Christian Project. Today, I am joined by Liesl Maddox from Colorado and also kind of from Texas, who's a registered dietitian and a Christian intuitive eating coach. So if you can guess, today's episode is all about nutrition. This is going to be fun. Liesl, hello. Say hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. So, okay, I'm wondering, you're one of the few people who um, is in our industry who kind of connects faith with the, you know, the health and wellness journey. So how did that start for you? Oh, man, such a good question. Diving right in. Um, I have been a believer, I feel like for most of my life, kind of my story is one of like, grew up in in the church, grew up in a family where, you know, I was taught about the Lord from a very young age and came to accept Christ at a very young age. But then my, my faith journey, like the Lord's pursuit of me was certainly a lot more like slow and steady throughout Mm -hmm. my life, just coming to know him more and more as I got older. Um, I knew I wanted to be a dietitian also at a very young age. I could probably have told you by age like 12 that I wanted to be a dietitian, that I wanted to work in nutrition. Um, and a, a large part of my story, why I became a dietitian and why I do what I do now is because at that age, my interest in nutrition very, very quickly took a turn into a full-blown obsession that led to a pretty severe eating disorder by the age uh, of 13. Classic. Um, yes. <laughs> Struggled with that, you know, from about the ages of 13 to 15, where it was a a much more like active eating disorder, and then Mm -hmm. started getting support, getting treatment for that. And thankfully, honestly, I think truly by like the Lord's grace in my life, um, fully recovered from that before I was finished with high school. Still wanted to be a dietitian because I'd had this interest in nutrition all along. And then thankfully, through my eating disorder recovery, that interest was kind of put back in its proper place and Mm -hmm. combined with this this passion I felt very clearly from the Lord of how am I going to help people with what I've walked through now knowing what it's like to struggle with an eating disorder to recover from one and to know what like what it's like to have that in your mind Mm -hmm. um and so I really felt this call from the Lord that like okay I want to do nutrition anyway I want to help people with eating disorders Um, and to be totally honest, here I am now, like mid twenties, I look back and I'm like, for more than half of my life, I have had this passion on my heart to help people with nutrition and eating disorders. And I just feel like the Lord has really like focused in, um, my, my passions. And sometimes I have moments where I'm like, man, do I like, what are my other interests? Um, (laughs) but it's such an amazing (laughs) feeling that how he's brought you to exactly where you want to be. Like that's such an awesome and blessed feeling. It it is. I mean, and it it gives me such a different like feeling of like having mission in my work because mm-hmm. I mean I could tell you like exactly like where I was at different points in my life when I would hear clearly from the Lord like you are going to use the hurt and the pain that you've been through to help other people, and that wow. just gives such a different feeling of purpose to the work I get to do now. I agree. Um, but integrating faith in that, you know. That's something that like in my own personal journey, in my own life story, those two things have always been intertwined because I'm a believer and, Mm -hmm. you know, I I went through my own eating disorder recovery and we know as believers, like you can't separate the different parts of your life and keep some things withheld from God and 
you know, give other parts to God. Like it really did feel so intertwined for me in my personal life that then when I went on to become a registered dietitian, started working in the field, um, I did start working with eating disorders pretty much right away, both at like Mm -hmm. an outpatient level and then worked for um, a pretty large, well-known eating disorder treatment facility that has locations all over the U.S., but they've got um, a large location in North Dallas. Um, So I was doing their like inpatient residential, what we call like partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient um, eating disorder treatment as a clinical dietitian. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved it. I learned so much. But the piece I always felt was missing was the ability to really speak openly and freely about my faith and to help, you know, my clients and my patients in that Mm -hmm. way. Um, You know, you get people here and there who are outspoken about being believers and who want that integrated as part of their treatment process. But otherwise, kind of like clinically and professionally, I just kind of felt like there were those barriers there that you can't you can't always speak openly and freely about your faith in, in certain environments like that. Um, so I really felt like, okay, this has been wonderful for learning, but I know in the big, big picture of things, I'm going to feel like I've missed part of God's calling on my life. If I don't have an outlet to mm-hmm. combine both of these things. Um, so, and so I'm kind of, I'm sorry. I'm kind of curious. Um, I want, I want to, not really tackle. I want to, let's say tackle. I want to tackle this eating disorder thing a little bit. Um, Cause right now a lot of people have eating disorders and I'm wondering, like you, you clearly have experience as well. Where's that coming from? Like, are there lies that the, that the health industry is sharing that, that is causing this? Like what's going on? Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. This opens up a whole another. <laughs> I'm like, I could talk about this forever. Um, you are absolutely right. The, the rise of eating disorders, like percentage wise, if you will, has continued to rise every, I mean, every year. Like mm-hmm. we certainly have more people being diagnosed with eating disorders right now in 2023 than 10 years ago, than 20 years ago. And I think there are a lot of factors that go into that. And, you know, when we look at it from like mental health in general, yeah, we have more overall awareness around mental health now than we also did 20, 30 years ago, partially because I think we're getting better at tackling kind of the stigma around mental health and eating disorders being part of that. So we're talking about it more, which in turn leads to more people getting, you know, having an awareness of how they're struggling and then getting support for it. And then for some people, that means getting a diagnosis. And so of course we see those numbers going up. Um, but with eating disorders, for example, we saw a huge rise in people getting treatment right around COVID Oh, because yep. people uh, were stuck at all home. All of my clients, all of my clients were like, yep, the COVID weight. And it's just a term now, right. the COVID weight. Right. I mean, people were kind of forced to be at home and the things that we're struggling with were right in our faces. And so we definitely saw a huge rise in the number of people getting treatment for eating disorders around that time. But I really... I really think as you're kind of talking about, okay, like what are the societal factors that yeah. contribute to this? Um, social media has mm-hmm. certainly been a rise. You know, as we think like about comparing each other. Oh, comparison. Um, how easy it is to spread false, false information, nutrition information, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, especially for like younger people, teenagers or kids who have 
access to the entire world on the internet. Which is (laughs) Um, is scary because it's no longer a tool. It's literally the world that they live in. Exactly, exactly. And just all the different messages about bodies and weight and food and nutrition. Again, a lot of those messages that aren't even like scientifically accurate combined with that comparison and like body objectification piece. I think absolutely has contributed to the rise in eating disorders that we're seeing, especially among younger people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's that piece kind of like, I think we're getting to here where like, how do we talk about weight and how do we talk about um, bodies and food and how that does contribute to the development of eating disorders among people of, of all ages, like eating disorders, like other mental health conditions do not discriminate based on age, yeah. gender, <laughs> culture, background, you know, anything like that. Um, and so honestly, something I see in my job, whether it was from the clinical side, treating eating disorders in, you know, inpatient treatment or mm-hmm. kind of the work I do more outpatient here. And then with coaching as well is where that message underneath where a lot of this starts is the belief that weight, you know, being in a smaller body is always better. And whatever we have to do to get there is worth it. So Um, yeah, where like, you you mentioned a term that that interested me, body objectification. Like, what is going on? Where are we getting these ideas? and, And why are they? Why are they so like tempting to believe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the language that we use in our culture. And, and again, this like deeply rooted belief that we have in our, you know, we'll just look at like our kind of Western, like modern society right now that um, like fat on our bodies and that weight is, is always bad. is always unhealthy. And (laughs) you know, there's absolutely something to be said and, you know, especially as Christians in taking care of our bodies, but we've been so convinced that taking care of our bodies and weight loss are like, are one like hand in hand. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the most important piece of the puzzle. And then the way that's talked about in our culture, you know, about like needing to lose weight to be healthy can get taken to such an extreme. And then we combine that with the aesthetic part of, Um, kind of what is we call like the thin ideal, like the ideal body. If we kind of picture that as a culture right now, probably, probably does look something like Barbie, if you will. Um, Yeah. It's timely. Now that the Barbie movie is out. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And those messages get, yeah, you know, I really think like talked about so much passed down that Mm -hmm. most of us start to internalize those messages, even as little kids and that that body objectification piece of um kind of just obsessing over what we look like judging ourselves critiquing ourselves um we have research research that just came out earlier this year that talked about how the age at which their researchers are seeing that children start to really like tune in and pay attention to kind of like the weight bias that idea that like being fat is bad and being thinner is good because i guess healthy yeah is it well like for me it started around 12 i'm gonna say it's earlier now is it like 10 it was like 
four to five years old. Four? It was like four to, it was preschool age children that researchers found are, have already started to internalize that belief that being fat is bad and I need to be, I need to be smaller, right? That idea that like, it's not good to be in a bigger body. It's good to be in a smaller body. And I get that there's a ton of nuance to that conversation. Like there's so, so many like details to dive into there. But what breaks my heart about that is because I know like, I'm sure that was part of my story. I mean, I can't remember totally like, gee, you know, what kind of thoughts was I thinking as a four or five year old, but to know that like, yeah, I developed a full blown restrictive eating disorder by the age of 12 means those messages were there a long time before that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have more research that shows that by the age of 10, 80% of little girls have tried to go or are currently on a diet to lose weight like that's 10 years old at 10 years old 80 percent of girls have so believed the idea that like i have to i have to diet i have to like stay in a small body and do anything i can to prevent you know weight gain or my body changing which again is just wild when we think of that age right around 10 where like rational like adult brains can be like no your body's going to change you probably will need to gain weight because the weight that you are at 10 years old is not going to be the, your healthy adult weight. <laughs> so what are some of the the warning signs or like something's going on that you need to to be aware of? Like what, like maybe it's a fire alarm, you know, going on inside of us. What's going on? What is it? Yeah. Yeah. You mean for like kids, especially like if, if kids, we're looking at. And then like teenagers too, maybe even adults, like what, what are the symptoms that come into play that are showing us like, okay, something is wrong in the way that we approach our food. Yeah. I think one thing, one thing I help clients with all the time and I see almost across the board is the way we think about food, very black and white. As mm. these are good foods and these, these are, are bad, bad foods. These are healthy foods. These are unhealthy. And you could replace those words with any kind of like black and white language, right? Like um, junk food, clean foods and junk food or, um, you know, natural and toxic. Like any of those mm-hmm. words that put a label on it and create this like binary in how we're looking at food. And, and that's something that a lot of people don't even know that they're doing because culturally we've been told that that's right, that that's like the way that we should look at food with these are the healthy and good foods. These are the bad and unhealthy foods. Um, and I think that's honestly one of the like first places where we see kind of the development of disorder eating start because oftentimes what happens is it goes from just labeling food that way to like projecting those labels on mm. ourselves and how often do we hear like, people i am unhealthy terms, if i eat exactly. unhealthy food right or the idea that like oh i ate really bad this weekend so i'm i'm feeling guilty because i was bad this weekend mm-hmm. right as if like they did something and then wrong. and then now you have to like punish yourself with either super clean eating or a workout or something like that yeah yeah or kind of like the self-righteousness that comes from like oh I've been really good like I've been eating really healthy Mm -hmm. so like this is really good and you know I think this is one thing I really love getting to talk about with um clients who are believers is the way that like food is not a moral issue like 
food itself holds no moral value. Food is food. Food is a gift from God. He made it taste good for a reason and he didn't have to do that. But there's nothing about our eating patterns, like the foods that we choose to eat, that dictates our level of righteousness or sinfulness. And and again, I think there's nuance here because, yes, I think there can be aspects of like our behavior and maybe like idols that we might have with food that that can that can lead to sinfulness. But the foods we simply choose to eat, whether you choose to have like the cake and the ice cream or the pizza or choose to have the salad, the broccoli and the grilled chicken, like neither of those choices makes you righteous or makes you sinful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that's kind of going down a, a different tangent. There no, but I, like... I really do a- appreciate that because at the end of the day, something you said, food is a gift. God didn't have to make it taste good, but he did for a reason. So how come we have turned it into some moral restrictive, like you are not allowed to do this. Where did that come from? I don't understand. I know. I know. And it's, it is so pervasive in, I mean, in our culture now. Mm -hmm. And absolutely. I think that contributes to the development of either disordered eating or full-blown eating disorders. Like how many times have you heard the term, I got to cut out bread. (laughs) <laughs> like why bread bread has literally been around for thousands of years exactly. and they've been doing fine with it exactly it's so funny because oftentimes when i meet with a new client and i'm asking them about you know you know what do you normally eat like tell me what your normal eating patterns are mm-hmm. and i'm coming from a place where like i'm not curiosity judge you right yeah. it's like it's it's gathering information it's gathering data for me to be able to help someone more And yet so often kind of the language they lead with is like, oh, you're going to think this is so bad or like, oh, I don't normally do this. It's like they they are leading with the assumption that they're going to be in trouble by telling Mm -hmm. a dietitian what they ate. If it's not, you know, meeting whatever assumption of like perfect that they have. And so often my response is like, hey, I am not here to judge you. I'm not here to be the food police. I really honestly care most about like, are you eating enough? Are you eating enough yeah. variety? Are you getting a, a ver, you know a variety of diverse nutrients from food? You don't have to come into this feeling like you're confessing your food sins to me. <laughs> That's interesting. But you know what? A lot of people have have not noticed that them restricting themselves so much can actually cause the opposite of what they're trying to achieve. Like if you're only eating a thousand calories a day, your body is now going to value each calorie so much more and hold on to it so tight that you might end up gaining weight. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's so fascinating to me and heartbreaking. It is. So often, you know, over the course of decades, the thing that people were trying to prevent all along by going on different diets, being really restrictive, maybe over-exercising and things like that can end up happening anyway because metabolism gets so damaged and they mm-hmm. become so out of touch with, you know, the hormonal factors like how our body regulates hunger and fullness or even the way that, um, like you said, over time, chronic dieting, chronic restriction, other like you know, disordered behaviors or over-exercising lowers metabolism, making it, you know, either harder to continue to lose weight, or it actually makes it easier for the body to hold on to and gain more weight, Mm -hmm. which is honestly out of like our body's, you know, 
God-designed and biological protective mechanism because your body's number one job is to try to keep you alive. And it doesn't know the difference between, you know, true starvation and then dieting. All the body knows is that like, I'm not getting enough energy right now. So I've got to do what I can to preserve what I have, which leads to, like you said, holding on to every calorie, making it harder to Mm -hmm. lose weight. You know, even if someone were, were doing it in a way that like unintentional weight loss might happen simply because of like behavior change, like focusing on like health focused, health promoting behaviors where some Mm -hmm. unintentional weight loss could potentially happen. But if they've been restricting chronic dieting for so long, that becomes harder and harder over time. What happens if like someone's been yo-yo dieting um, for the past, I don't know, five, 10 years, and they plan on continuing. I've actually had this happen um, where I was talking to a client and he was telling me like, the church is having a fast and so he's going to lose 20 pounds. And I'm, and I'm like, okay, but what happens when it's done? He's like, I'll gain it. I'm like, and then why? He's mm-hmm. like, well, the church will fast again and then I'll lose it. So like, what happens to your body when that, when you keep doing that? Uh, a lot of damage. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is honestly like one of the greatest hazards, if you will, for the body is to constantly be doing that. Up and down, up and down. It is more dangerous metabolically and in terms of chronic disease to be doing that up and down Mm yo-yo than if you were to have stayed at a higher weight, but be maintaining it the whole time. So let's just say, let's just say that man, you know, never went on the diet, but his weight maintained within maybe, you know, a five to 10 pound range. There's that homeostasis. There's that balance that your body wants to stay in. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's what we refer to as like your set point weight range where mm-hmm. your body would naturally like hold its weight. Again, it fluctuates. It's a range, maybe five to 10 pounds for most people, maybe a little bit more for some people mm-hmm. um, where it can hold that set point in the absence of disordered eating and chronic dieting. And there's a lot of research that shows us that even just staying at that, you know, kind of set point weight range is healthier metabolically and for chronic disease prevention than doing that yo-yo. And so, you know, let's say someone, like you said, with this man, like loses, loses 20 or 30 pounds, but then gains it back, maybe even gains more back and after then loses that. loses again and then and gains it again. And to do that, that is much more harmful metabolically than if he had just stayed at the higher weight the entire time to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also a mindset thing going on here because like when you approach food from a, I can't eat this, I can't do that. It's like putting a restriction, it's restriction, it's scarcity. It's, and the more you approach it from that scarcity mindset, the more you're going to want to eat that food. A hundred percent. Yes. And so what does abundance mindset look like when it comes to a food? Mm Hmm. I love that phrasing. I haven't heard it phrased that way before. Um, I think it really starts with neutrality, that that mindset that like once you're not keeping things off limits, food actually loses its like significance or like allure a whole mm-hmm. lot more. You know, it's no longer like that shiny object on a pedestal when you have leveled the playing field with all foods. 
And I really think the first place that starts and an, an easy place to start for most people is neutralizing your language around food. So not using those black and white terms mm-hmm. anymore of like the good and the healthy and the bad and the unhealthy, but starting to see food for it's That's just, food. it's yeah, it's just food and you, it's okay to see it for kind of the objective nutrition differences. Cause I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, nutritionally, the piece of cake and the broccoli are equal because that would just be silly and incorrect. Like there are nutritional differences in the macronutrient and mm-hmm, micronutrient breakdown from a piece of cake to broccoli. What we want to do though, is make them morally equal that you are not yeah. bad for eating the cake. And you're also not good for eating the broccoli. You're just eating food. You're just and eating. when you do that over time, you know, assuming that someone is nourishing their body enough, they're not restricting anymore. Um, that there aren't underlying factors leading to like binge eating or compulsive, mm-hmm. compulsive overeating or emotional eating. Um, it really does start to, again, kind of neutralize your relationship with food. And then, like you said, as long as you're not, you're no longer looking at some foods as like the bad off limits foods and depriving yourself of those, it actually makes it way less likely that you would overeat or maybe binge on those foods Mm -hmm. and something people start to notice as they're healing their relationship with food especially through intuitive eating is that those same foods you thought were like really you know significant really exciting become less exciting because they're no longer off limits it's just a food that you're allowed to have and you can have it when you want but you also don't have to have it um and that becomes a lot more freeing Mm -hmm. and you know well, there's um, you know, it's actually kind of funny because I just lost my train of thought. But going back to that, um, that example of like you can have the piece of cake. You don't have to, but you can. Um, it it changes things because when you look at it, food isn't like you're saying. Food isn't just food, but it also has, you know, a circumstance, a time, a place, for example, maybe cake reminds you of the time you got to spend with your parents or ice cream reminds you of pizza night with your, with your friends. And when, I don't know, whatever it was, like there's emotions involved with food. It's really not just a a macronutrient, micronutrient and calorie information. Right. Right. I, and I think, I mean, being a Christian, that's like one of the beautiful things we have as a gift from the Lord. Because again, mm-hmm. he did not have to do that. He could have made giving our bodies energy. Um, I mean, he didn't have to include that part at all, technically. He could have designed us differently. Yep. He could have made it as simple as kind of equivalent to putting gas in the car and like just taking <laughs> some kind of like some emotionless, like there's nothing involved. Yes. Or it's he boring. could have continued to send like manna down from the you know the, onto the earth every day if he wanted mm-hmm. to. But like Part of his good design is that he gave us food. I mean, he literally started creation in a garden with food. Yeah. Um, and he gave us diverse flavors and textures. And mm-hmm. I mean, how many like millions of different kinds of food and combinations of food there are on this earth. And then we also look and see that there's still going to be food in eternity. And We're even in Jesus' for... ministry, like, look yeah. at how many times he feeds people. Food, I mean, food is such a an emotional connector and a social connector. And you're right, yeah. like, how many times 
like significant events in the Bible happened in With the food. context of food, of feasting. Um, mm -hmm. Even that concept of like feasting and fasting that is yeah. biblical. And so I think when we start to look at it that way and really bring some more like gratitude and appreciation for the gift that food is, you know, I think really helps to understand like, why do we as Christians, why should we want to steward this gift well? Mm -hmm. And then if we just start to look at it through a biblical lens, like again, kind of an objective, like just what does God have to say about this? It really does kind of clash with society's messages about food, right? Being like good or bad, doing this diet, doing that diet. Mm -hmm. Food is food is good, but it's honestly pretty neutral in the <laughs> Bible. You know, we don't we don't see instructions to diet or cut out this food, you know, other than like mm -hmm. certain parts in the Old Testament when it's for very specific, like, you know, as part of God's law and then how that, you know, even changed after yeah. Jesus's you know, death and resurrection. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that lights me up a lot in the work I get to do now of like talking about faith and God's design for food when it comes to nutrition is that it is a gift and it is something to be grateful for. And it's hard to fully be grateful for it if we're living in that chronic place of restriction, deprivation, chronic mm -hmm. dieting and seeing food as the enemy. I, I completely agree. I even, um, when I talk to my clients, every client I talk to, I always tell them, listen, I'm not going to give you a meal plan. I'm not going to tell you to track your calories or track your nutrient or whatever it is. I, we got to approach food differently. And so like the way I do it is, is kind of like taking a 1% better each day approach. Cause instead of throwing everything at them and telling them, all right, this is good. This is bad. Let's do this. Let's not do that. Like I asked them, okay, I know you want to make some changes with some food. What's, what do you feel like is the most urgent? And then maybe they'll tell me something. Maybe, for example, they'll be like, I want to I wanna stop eating sugar. I'm like, okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. Let's break that down a little bit. When are you eating sugar? And then we figure out it's really – they're just stressed. They're just yeah. really stressed, and that's what we got to handle. Not the, su the sugar is just the symptom. Absolutely. I think we are so quick to blame everything on food, mm -hmm. which I know probably sounds funny coming from a registered dietitian <laughs> where my whole career revolves around food. But sometimes the food itself is not the problem. Yeah, You're right. Like, are there emotional underneath. factors? Is there a full-blown eating disorder happening? Or even like, um, I see this a lot with digestive issues and concerns where people are really quick to go to blame food and look at like, well, what should I be cutting out? Maybe the problem all along is that you're not eating enough. And so, of course, you're having digestive issues because there's not enough for your, you know, your muscles, your digestive system to move along. Mm -hmm. And so you're right, like really getting to the bottom of, wait a second, is there more going on here with how you're engaging with food? Not actually like the kind of food that you're eating that you need to cut out to fix something. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. So what would you say to someone listening who's like, okay, I believe you guys. I just don't know what to do. <laughs> um, like, what, what's the first step I take right now? Mm. I mean, usually I'll say stop dieting. <laughs> but I realize that can that can be really scary for people. It's hard. Especially if that's all they've known. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I work with clients who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and like they've been dieting for decades, it can feel really scary to let go of and unlearn the thing that has felt so right 
for them for so long. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people do appreciate learning more of like, okay, what does the science say? What is the research saying about chronic dieting or, you know, disordered eating and eating disorders of why, why this is harmful for the body. Um, and so, you know, getting into like, what are, what does the research say? I think there's some really good resources out there nowadays. Um, there's a wonderful book called Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison, who's a phenomenal dietitian and food journalist in the, you know, intuitive eating space who explains that research really well. Um, the book itself called Intuitive Eating starts by really going over the research, the science behind why diets don't work. And I think that's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. um, and then getting support, like, you know, having the support from, from people who have either been gone there before, it. gone yeah. through it, as well as can help guide people because it is, praying. it would be, yeah, it'd be really overwhelming to stop dieting. Or again, if someone's experiencing a full-blown eating disorder, definitely <laughs> seek support someone, for that. Yeah. Um, instead of going at it alone and then feeling really overwhelmed when you stop dieting and then all of a sudden, let's say someone feels out of control with food, well, there might still be an imbalance there that we want to work on to help bring things back into a balanced place with food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to conclude this on, on a Bible verse. Um, and I don't want to take this Bible verse out of context. And so let me give a little bit of context. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was talking to these people and he's telling them, you know, don't worry about, about food. Your life is more than is food. Don't worry about clothing. Your body is more than clothing. And your father, as he supplies for, for these birds and the sparrows, he'll feed you too. You know, back then they, they were worried about not having enough food. Today, it's kind of like we're worried about having too much food um, and eating too much food. But at the, the same thing applies. Like, stop. Don't worry about food and what you're going to eat and, and stop dieting. You know, imagine approaching food that way and how much more peace we have in our hearts when we, like you said, remove the morality from food, remove the righteousness aspect and just look at it as a gift. Yeah, absolutely. I think that can be like the major theme of this episode. <laughs> Absolutely. It does. It comes down to having that peace and honestly getting that peace solely from the Lord because we're not going to find it in the comfort from food, coping with food. We're also not going to find it in just having a smaller body or losing weight. Like that's mm -hmm. not ultimately going to satisfy the longing in our hearts either. It truly, truly has to come from the Lord. And I think for a lot of people nowadays, that does mean like, how do we release control with food and yeah. dieting so that we can find that ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction only in the Lord? That's true. When, what is the saying? Like, let go and let God or something like yes. that. But ultimately that's what actually gives us the perfect peace. When we try to control everything, it, it just, it's a burden. We weren't meant to control so much of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let go, let God. I love that saying. Awesome. Well, Lisa, I appreciate you and, and the insight and the wisdom that you've brought. And this was a really fruitful episode. No pun intended. Um, no food pun intended. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. My absolute pleasure as well. And for those listening, I hope you learned something cool. Um, and reach out to any of us if you have any questions. And enjoy. Thank you.
Thank you.